on that very first Sunday. I told you that we want to be really careful not to approach the book just as uh, academics and just students of the Word, but as wonders and worshipers also. Head knowledge is great if it translates into worship, if it translates into relationship. And so to be wonders and worshipers is a really high priority, so much so that Jesus actually spoke to us about it. He held the value of what it means to be a true worshiper so high that he actually had them write about it in the New Testament. Let me show you this verse up on the screen. John 4.23 says this, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You imagine that? God actually seeks you to be his worshipers. Look at the last part of the verse. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is God saying to you, if you're going to worship him properly, it requires worshiping in spirit and in truth. Here is a truth. Sometimes when we come in here to worship, we don't really feel like it. You know, we can see other people singing around us. Sometimes we don't know the song. Sometimes the band's playing too fast. Sometimes they're playing too slow. Sometimes they're too loud. Sometimes they're too soft. And we're not really into it. But that's the point when we have to remind ourselves what we're doing is worshiping in relationship and in truth. And the truth part is really hard. There's a difference between worship big W and little W, and I can help you understand it this way. This afternoon, probably a couple hours from now, guys from this auditorium will go to their homes and worship at the altar of the television when the gods of football appear on the screen, okay? Why is that easy for us to worship in that setting? Because, and we can cheer, I mean, we can jump up out of our chairs and be enthusiastic about a touchdown, unless you're cheering for the Lions, of course. You don't get much chance to worship at that point, but um, that's another issue. In that setting, we study the statistics, the facts. We know the win-loss record. We can tell lots of things about Brett Favre and how many times he said he will play and won't play this year. Ladies, I'm not leaving you out of this. You can worship at the altar of the mall. You research, especially, (laughs) Jerry, (laughs) especially at this time of year. Coupon finding, looking for the best bargain, the deal, the thing that you want, so much so that when you're enthusiastic, and I've seen you do this in the mall, you come out of the store with your package and you call your girlfriend, I got it, I got it. Okay, you understand? Worshiping small w, very excited. Why? We've done the research. We're enthusiastic about it. Worshiping what you know is not hard. Worshiping what you're in relationship is a little bit more difficult. Worshiping in truth, that requires a lot of knowledge about the one you're in relationship with. That's a difficult step. That's why worship is such a mystery to those who are not raised in the church. 
who don't have a relationship with God to come in and see people standing and singing. Those phrases don't make sense. But for a true follower of Christ, something resonates. Perhaps not with every song, but something resonates. I think you're going to find this morning, as we look at this particular text, we're stepping away from Revelation this morning, just so you know, to look at the Christmas story in Matthew. When we examine this text this morning, I believe you're going to leave here today with a bigger W in your column of worshipers because you'll have more knowledge about the one that you're worshiping. And we want to be really careful that it's not just academic, that we leave as wonders and worshipers. And I'll explain that to you in just a little bit. Before we step into this, I'm going to invite you to pray with me about this text that we're about to look at. So would you do that with me? Father, we're about to examine uh, writings from thousands of years ago, things that were written in another language that have been translated down through the years. Yet your spirit, you personally promised that the things that we're about to read are, are inhabited by you. And although they were written by men, you inspired personally the men to write these things down. And that's a mystery to us, Father. But it moves us. There's something that speaks to our core. Father, take these truths, these things that we're about to learn about these ancient cultures and these words that you've had written down for us and help us to know more of you, to understand you better. Father, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm about to get heated up here, so I'm going to shed that jacket. Who is the smartest person that you know or have ever heard of? Aristotle? Galileo? Albert Einstein? He rates pretty high, doesn't he? Stephen Hawking's? Bill Gates? You could add some names to the list of your own, I'm sure. Men who are considered knowledgeable, some in that list that I just made are considered wise. Aristotle, the first person that I mentioned, actually held a belief, a scientific belief, that the heavier object, if you held two objects, let's say you had a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight, and you drop them at the same time. Aristotle believed and taught that the 10-pound weight would hit the ground first. Do you know that no one challenged that particular belief for 2,000 years? No one bothered to take a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight and drop them at the same time and see if Aristotle was actually right. Because he was a wise man, no one challenged him. Until the year 1529, when a young upstart scientist came along by the name of Galileo, said, I challenge that belief. Heavy objects and light objects fall at the same rate, known as gravity. The fall rate is the same. So this is what he did. He invited professors from around Italy, the known area in which he taught, to come to the city called Pisa where there is a tower that leans today, we call the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It leaned back then. He climbed to the top of the tower and took a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight. 
and challenged the professors to watch the rate at which it would drop, pushed them off at the same time, and of course, we know today, they both fell at the same rate and both hit the ground exactly at the same time. Yet, the professors, those who were so learned that saw the evidence in front of them, had been schooled in the Aristotle-style thinking, they believed that what they saw was false, and they made him do it again and again. And at the end of the experiment, they refuted his claim and said, no, a heavier object falls faster. Even though they could see it with their eyes, they lacked wise eyes. They allowed their predisposition of what they had known earlier to overcome the evidence that was right in front of them. Do you have wise eyes this morning to look beyond the things that you're predisposed to, to open up a whole new realm to things that perhaps you didn't fully understand before? This morning, I'm going to present evidence to you. And the evidence that I'm going to present, if you're a believer, will strengthen you and equip you in your walk. And if you're perhaps a skeptic and you're not there yet today, you're going to be confronted with a 10-pound weight and you're going to have to do something with it. It'll be interesting material, it's academic material, but we also want to be careful to be wonders and worshipers through it. So if at some point when I get too academic, if your eyes start to glaze over, I'm going to walk up to you and say, Kevin, wake up! Okay? Not to put any pressure on you, of course. All right? I just want you to listen and really take this in because what you're about to see is God at work. Not that you fall asleep, Kevin. I would never suggest that. Only Matt Hall does that. Where is he? Sleeping back there, yes. Okay. Today in our world, in ancient history, the seven wonders of the world are exalted to the pinnacle of engineering success. Those who study ancient construction and ancient engineering find the ancient seven wonders of the world to be beyond comprehension. They still mystify engineers today. Two of them I'm going to show you pictures of on the screen. I want you to see them and understand what they are. The Pyramid of Giza, you're familiar with that, one of the ancient seven wonders. The second one, the Hanging Gardens in Babylon. Engineers today cannot figure out how in the world were they able to accomplish what they accomplished. This is just two of the seven. Men who lived at this period of time, who walked, who were part of this construction, who dwelt in the city and understood what it took to construct these items were considered the hakem, the wise men. I want to teach you a word this morning that I want you first to see the definition, and we're going to practice your Hebrew a little bit. So I want you first to see the definition of hakem up on the screen, meaning wise, intelligent, Skillful or artful, a cunning man, subtle, wise-hearted. Okay, so I want you to practice your best Middle Eastern accent. You've got to really hock it up, okay? Hakem. All right, say it with me. Hakem. You can do better than that. Hakem. You see why they get that kind of weird sound in their throat? I mean, it's not like the King's English that's so proper. They've just got that guttural sound coming out. But they say it with such emotion. The Hakem were considered the wise men of their day. There were some in Scripture that were considered so wise, elevated to the very top of their game, that Scripture actually records how intelligent they were. 
Let's look at some of those. The first one I want you to see is Solomon. Solomon in 1 Kings 4.30 says, Scripture says this about him. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now just remember the two realms that they show there. Egypt and the east, the orient. Next one, Moses. Acts 7.22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and in deeds. Third one, Daniel. The king talked with them, and out of them, meaning Daniel and his friends, who were part of these wise people in his realm, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel. Verse 20, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them, Daniel and his friends, ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Now, what about this word, hakem? How often is it used throughout Scripture? Let me give you two verses where you'll see it appear. Genesis 41.8, speaking of Pharaoh. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its hakem, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now if you're familiar with that story, you know where it's going. They brought a hakem in by the name of Joseph, a wise man. The next one comes from Exodus 7.11. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men, the hakem, and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. So you see these hakem appearing throughout history in different kingdoms, in different realms. What did it take to be a hakem? Did they have to have an IQ of 135? Did they qualify for Mensa? Were they like Albert Einstein? Here's some of the qualifications that the book of Esther speaks of. Characteristics of a hakem. This comes from Esther 1.13. Then the king said to the wise men, who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, The seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. So what do we see there? They understood the times. They knew law and justice, meaning they were lawyers and judges. They were close to the king, his personal counselors. And it says in the last sentence, in the first place in the kingdom. Why? Astronomy, astrology, science, math, medicine, natural management of the earth, all these things are what they specialized in. The hakem were at the very, very top of their game. Now, I want you to take all that information and just kind of set it on a shelf on the side as we step into the Christmas story I'm going to help you link some things together. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 2. It's a fairly short little passage. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. If you happen to be visiting with us this morning, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And not only should you use those now, but you are welcome to take those with you when you leave today. If you don't own a Bible, we really want you to have God's Word in your hand. And that's what that's there for. So Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, it's a very familiar Christmas story. Let's just take a first couple verses here. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. In the days of Herod the king, what do we know about Herod? He was a pretty bad dude, okay? He came into power in 36 BC when the Romans installed him. Caesar Augustus actually put him in power. One of Rome's greatest emperors, Caesar Augustus, actually put King Herod into place. He was so ruthless that when he came into power, he killed, literally murdered everybody who stood in opposition to him and firmly entrenched himself in the kingdom of Judea, what we know today as Israel and the realm that he controlled. Later in his life, he became such a madman, so angry for power, that he actually killed his wife and two of his sons whom he thought, he just imagined, that they were conspiring to overthrow him. On the day that he died, he arranged to have hundreds of Jewish leaders executed so that all the world would remember him, not for just his birth and his rule, but also for his death. He didn't want anybody to forget him. What happened, though, on the day that he died is nobody bothered to carry out the order because what's he going to do? He's dead, you know? So nobody got killed, but this was the kind of guy that he was. And we find that Matthew writes that in the days of Herod, literally, when Herod was the ruler over this realm, that some magi showed up. Now, what are the magi? I want you to see some definitions, and this is where your eyes can start to glaze over, okay? So pay real close attention so I don't have to wake you up, all right? So look at the first word for magi. The word magi, the definition for it is magos, of foreign origin. Now, this is real important that you know this. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, very rarely do you find Hebrew words. Even more rarely do you find words that are from another country, a foreign origin word. So magos is not a Hebrew word. This is the definition for it in foreign origin, though. A magian, an oriental scientist by implication, a hakem, a wise man. Now, let's look at the next word that comes from the Hebrew root. Magi, magos in one language, means rabmag in another language in Hebrew. What is rabmag? In Hebrew, rab is a foreign word for a magian, a chief magian, a Babylonian official. Let's take the next word, rab. It's a compound word. It's another Hebrew word, and it means abundant in quantity, age, rank, quality, an elder, exceedingly great man, prince, mighty. So obviously, by these definitions, no matter if you're in an Eastern culture and you use the word magos, or in the Hebrew culture and you use the word rabmag, this is a pretty important person. This is someone who's been elevated to a very high status. So these magi who have arrived are not just camel jockeys, okay? These are people who have some authority behind them. Now, is there anything in archaeology that links what we know today as being the magi with this trip all the way over to Jerusalem? Because if the Magi and the Hakam are the same people, that means they came from way over in Babylon, where the Iraq War is taking place, in Persia. And they traveled 800 miles to get to Jerusalem. Is there anything that authenticates that? 
If you're familiar with the adventure Marco Polo, the first thing you want to know is that Marco Polo made a journey into the Orient, into Persia. And on his journey, he traveled to a particular city in Persia. I want you to see the quote directly from his diary, what he wrote when he came into the city called Sava. Today we call it Tehran. Look at his quote. In Persia is the city called Sava, from which the three magi set out when they came to worship Jesus Christ. Here too they lie buried side by side. The one is just beside the other in three sepulchers of great size and beauty. Above each sepulcher is a square building with a domed roof of very fine workmanship. The bodies are still entire, with hair and beard remaining. One was named Belteshazzar, the second Gaspar, and the third Melchior. The inhabitants declare that in the days gone by, the three kings of this country went to worship a newborn prophet and took with them three offerings, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, so as to discover whether this prophet was a god, an earthly king, or a healer. That was written in 1279 A.D. when Marco Polo made his trip. Is there anything older than that? I want you to see this next image that comes from 339 A.D. This image was found by Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, when she made a journey to Jerusalem. And they discovered this vase in which is carved the images of Persian wise men handing gifts over to a man and a woman with a baby. So archaeologically, we've got some evidence here that this really backs up a long time in history. It goes way, way back to 300 A.D. Now, can we go back any further than that? Well, first of all, let's set the background. In history, there's four great world empires. First one, the Babylonian Empire. Second one, the Medo-Persian Empire. Third one, the Greece, the empire of Greece, the Greco empire. And the fourth one is the Roman empire. You'll be interested to know that the Hakem, the wise men, appear in each of these world empires, even though politically everything changed, the game changed in all these countries, the Hakem still existed. In the book of Daniel, you find Daniel in the midst of the Hakem in the Babylonian empire. In the book of Esther, you find the Hakem, the wise men, in the midst of the Medo-Persian empire, on through the empire of Greece and on through the empire of Rome, until this point where we arrive at this story, the Christmas story, about these magi, these Hakem, arriving in Jerusalem. How did they know? Hundreds of years have passed by. We're not talking, let's go back to the time of George Washington. We're not even talking, let's go back to the time of, let's say, Columbus. We're talking, let's go back to the time of Marco Polo. 800 years before, there was prophecies written about Jesus' arrival. How in the world did these guys from an oriental country know to make this journey to come all the way across to Jerusalem? Did they just have an epiphany, something arrive in their mind? Or were they taught by someone? I want you to look with me up on the screen at Daniel 1.20. Daniel 1.20 says this, 
As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. We read that verse just a few minutes ago. What is that representing? If you're familiar with the story of Daniel at all, you know this. If not, I'm going to fill you in very quickly. Daniel was a Jewish young man raised in royalty, taken from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon and kept as a captive under King Nebuchadnezzar. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, he was tested and tried, and he was elevated to a position of great authority within King Nebuchadnezzar's realm, within his authority of his kingdom. Look at this next verse, Daniel 2.48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the hakem of Babylon. So what we have here is a young man totally devoted to God who's skilled in astrology, astronomy, mathematics, science, medicine, and he's made the authority over all the magi. And his mind is filled with prophecy of the Old Testament. He understands the prophecy that there is a future coming Messiah, a king to rule the earth. And evidently, from what I've understood here and what other theologians have studied, Daniel poured into these people. There's only one way they could have known this information, and that's if they knew the prophecies from the Old Testament. I'm going to share with you just five of the prophecies that piqued their interest, that should catch your attention, because they're written so long before Jesus. The first one is regarding the star of Bethlehem. This comes from Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. What's unique about that word star is it's defined as or. I want you to see the definition for it. Here's what it literally means. An illumination, concrete, a luminary, bright, clear, like the sun. So when these ancients saw this prophecy associating a star with the arrival of a scepter, meaning a king, that caught their attention. Look at the next verse. This comes from Isaiah 60. Nations will come to your light, your oar, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. So we find this star written about 800 years before Jesus and these magi, these hakem, who study things in the sky are acutely aware that there's a rival of a king coming. Look at the next one. Kings will come and worship. Psalm 68, 29. Kings will bring gifts to you. Psalm 72, 11. And let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. Here's another prophecy. Isaiah 49, 7, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Think of the definition of the hakem, princes, mighty men, bringing gold and bowing down, written about way, way back in time. This journey from Babylon to Jerusalem would have taken three months. 
So you have to know that to leave your job for three months and go on a journey all the way across the Middle East to get to a country to look for a star that you read about from ancient prophecy had to have really meant something huge to them. This is not a small venture. This is a huge undertaking for them. Look with me now at the rest of the verse from verse 1. They arrived in Jerusalem, verse 2, where he who has been, they arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. If you have your own Bibles this morning, you don't mind writing in it, I'll give you two clues within that verse that you're going to want to circle. The first one is the word born. These guys came into this realm with all their power asking this question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? How was Herod made king? He was installed. Jesus is born king of the Jews. It wasn't conferred upon him later. It was his from birth. This is royal ascension. Now look at the next one, the word king. They're using specifically a very important word that's only associated with a certain type of king. Look at the definition first for the word king, basileus, and it has a specific meaning, meaning his basis is a foundation of power. It emanates from him. That was only used of the mightiest kings, this word basileus. So I'm going to give you two more prophecy verses in which it's used. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king Basilius and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. Second one, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your Basilius, your king, is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. The star that's referred to here, I'm not going to get off into that. That's an entire subject on its own. But this is what I encourage you to do. Go to the Christian bookstore or order online a DVD called The Star of Bethlehem. If you have never seen it before, you will be fascinated by it. A research scientist from NASA and an attorney from an area down in Texas got together and did 10 years of research to try and discover what is this star of Bethlehem. I'm not going to tell you anything more, but this is absolutely fascinating what they came up with. So I'm hawking it out there for them. The DVD is called The Star of Bethlehem, if you get a chance to buy it. I saw it at the Christian bookstore this last week for 10 bucks. So this is the next thing they say, and this is where the big W comes in. They said, we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to proscuneo him, worship with a capital W. Look first at the definition for the word worship. Proscuneo, literally or figuratively, to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reverence, to adore, worship. There's something very specific about this word. Proscuneo is what you do when you stand and sing in worship on Sunday mornings because what we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus Christ is bow our hearts before the king. Proscuneo was only used in worship of a ruling king. 
So they're very specific about the words that they've chosen to use. And notice, these guys are so eager to proscuneo this king that they've never met before that they come into the city with this entourage saying, where is he? We want to know him. And yet, they've seen the star that was prophesied for 800 years in Herod's realm were the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawmakers, the Sadducees, the priests. They had all of this writing, and yet they didn't translate it into worshiping the king. It took Gentiles from another realm to come to this country and point out to them that, hey, just because you got head knowledge of what's written in there doesn't actually translate into proscuneo. This is what we find from these individuals who are earnestly seeking the king. They want to proscuneo. So formal knowledge of the scriptures doesn't actually translate into a relationship with Jesus, does it? It takes the proscuneo of the heart. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He heard this and he was troubled. Why was he troubled? The word that's used there is actually the word agitated, like your washing machine, when it shakes back and forth and it's washing your clothes. He was agitated. He was roiled like roiling water. What was shaking him up? Rome, whom he was very loyal to, was afraid of the Babylonian Empire politically at this time. They were afraid because of previous wars that the Persian Empire was going to sweep in and try and conquer Rome again. As a matter of fact, in 56 B.C. and in 45 B.C., there were battles between the Roman Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire, what was left of it. And Rome naturally won. Guess where the battles took place? In the Valley of Armageddon. The great powers of the West and the great powers of the East met right in the Middle East in the heart of Israel and had another world battle. But that's just an aside. So Herod's afraid when he sees these guys come in. Why is he afraid? Because during the period of time in which Alexander the Great went into Babylon, Magi were elevated one more step. They were elevated to the realm of actually being king makers. No one could become a king within the Persian Empire unless the Magi endorsed them. If the Magi put their stamp on them, they were king. So here's Herod, who's been installed by Caesar Augustus. He's irritated and agitated, but he's scared because he's got the great power of the east coming against his power of the west. And this Persian cavalry comes riding in saying, where's the king of the Jews? Interestingly, Caesar had named Herod king of the Jews. Hey, that's my title. I'm the one. I'm the one that's supposed to be the king of the Jews. So he's troubled in his heart. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Do you notice the word change? He didn't say, where is the king of the Jews to be born? He took the word Messiah and inserted it in there because he knew it was one and the same. Messiah is king. And so he's asking them, where is this king? Where is he supposed to be born? Now, why in the world would a king with a small K over a Roman empire 
invite religious leaders into the Oval Office to inform him of what's going on. He had the power and the might of Rome at his disposal. And yet, he brings in the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and he asks them a question. Because of this, all of the law that existed at that time was based on the Old Testament. And the scribes were the Supreme Court justices. They were the authorities over the known law of the day because they interpreted law. And so he invited the lawmakers into his Oval Office. And then he went one step further, and he also invited the high priest, because that's what you see it says here, the chief priest and the scribes. Understand this, these two groups, they didn't like each other. They were at odds with each other. So what he did, in order to get them to speak honestly, he invited two opposing parties into his office so that they would both speak to them. And he said, where is the Mashiach supposed to be born? And this is the verse that you're most familiar with. It comes from the Christmas language. Look closely at it. Verse 5. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And that sentence stands alone on its own because this is what they said. What stands written is uncontested. They were the authorities of the law. They knew everything about the Old Testament. So the literal interpretation of that phrase right there is it's uncontested. What's uncontested? This next verse, verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This prophecy by Micah written hundreds of years before, was taken very seriously by King Herod. Why? Because he knows what many people have forgotten today. What God says will happen, will happen. And he knew that this prophecy was not to be taken lightly. And he got very serious about it. When God says it's going to come about, it's going to come about. But when these guys quoted Micah, they didn't quote the whole verse. They left something out. Let me show you what they left out. Look up on the screen at Micah 5.2. It was only a partial quote. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. This is the part they left out. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, written nearly 800 years before, there was a prophecy about a coming king of kings, one who goes back in time beyond time. You need to know that that phrase, goings forth, is a phrase that's only associated with military action. It speaks of a king assembling his army to go out and conquer. One whose goings forth are from long ago, look specifically at it, from the days of eternity. Why did they leave that out? Because they're talking to the madman Herod. And if they're telling him that there's one who's about to be born, who is of military might, the king of kings, the one whose going forth are from old, you don't deliver bad news like that to a madman king. So they just conveniently left off the last two parts. 
It's a pretty important part to leave off. Verse 7, this is how Herod follows up. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Secretly, why? Because he's already planning and scheming to kill the little boys. He's going to go into Bethlehem and wipe them out. He just wants to know the exact age of the children. But note this. These wise men, the Hakem, are so well informed about this one that they're about to proscuneo, they know the exact time and date when the star appeared. It reminds me of you. When we study the book of Revelation and you're very intent and you're flipping through your pages trying to see if what I'm saying is accurate, that's like the hakem, being wise, looking and examining the word so that we can look for our coming king. That's how accurate these individuals were because Herod came to them. Verse 8, it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Do you believe him? Do you think this madman really wanted to proscuneo himself? Or was he scheming? Apparently, the wise men believed him. They didn't challenge him. They just went. And apparently, he believed that he had fooled them because they went without any hesitation. But God warned them later. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And here comes the big W. Look at verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him, proscuneo. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Notice, they came in and they saw Mary and the baby, but they only worshipped the baby. They didn't worship Mary. They were able to separate and understand who is this king? And they proscuneoed themselves. And then they've been warned by God, saying, don't go back to Herod. Which way did they go? We believe that they probably went around the south side of the Dead Sea because Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. So they probably went around the south side of the Dead Sea at great risk to themselves. If you're invited emissaries into a country in which you've got a madman for a king who has the power of Rome behind him, to disobey the king's order is at great peril to your own life. And yet, they so deeply honored the king that they're willing to put their lives at risk, that they actually went against him. I have to ask you this question at this point. How far are you willing to go to proscuneo your king. When I think of Phil and Pat Thurston and Amanda Brown giving up the comforts of living in this realm to go to a third world country, I think of people who are genuinely proscuneo. 
Not that you aren't. We all find it in different ways. But you have to ask yourself, how far am I willing to go? This is at great risk for men who had much to lose. So I have to ask you this question. Are you wise enough to see him with wise eyes the way that we've seen this morning? Because Jesus said this, if you do, you are blessed among all people. He wrote specifically to us, those who have not seen him. This is what he said about us. Look up on the screen at John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. You haven't seen him. I haven't seen him. And yet we believe. The Magi got to actually see him. Proscuneo a word that's only used of royalty. And they recognize with wise eyes who this one is. I believe that the Magi, just like the men of Nineveh, will rise up one day and condemn this generation because we had the eyes, we had the light before us, and many missed it and didn't see it like they saw it. How can I speak of that so emphatically? Look at this last verse as I close. Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came forth from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 600 years before the birth of Jesus, he arranged for a young man to be taken captive, hauled into Babylon, to be elevated to the highest position in the land under King Nebuchadnezzar of the empire of Babylon in order to rule over the Magi so that one day the Hakem would travel from the east to the west, to proscuneo himself before this one who was prophesied. Does our God control history or what? Amazing, amazing that we worship this God. So let me take you back to this verse that we studied this morning. John 4, 23. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If you come back for the Christmas Eve services this week, you may be able to enter into big W worship with greater understanding about this king that we will celebrate on Christmas Day. King of kings, Lord of lords, controller of all history. Would you pray with me? Father, we don't hesitate to declare that this is truth, that you sent Jesus to redeem us, and that you control and orchestrate all of the events of history so that you can do one thing, bring glory to yourself and redeem people who are far from you. God, many in this room have been redeemed. And we say thank you. 
Thank you, Father, for moving among us and helping us to see with wise eyes at one time in our life. But Father, each of us know individuals who are not yet there and who need to be able to see you more clearly. So Father, I ask that you would use your spirit to reveal yourself for questioning hearts, those who are genuine truth seekers, Father. Make yourself known. Even yet today, Father, give them the greatest Christmas they've ever had to worship the King of Kings. Father, we ask that you would take this truth and apply it to our hearts, the things that we have studied intently this morning. Help us to be more bold in our walk for you because we understand what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I hope you have a great week, and I hope you can come back for Christmas Eve. See you then.